Hey, y'all. Welcome back to uh, Holler Back, Season 2, Episode 5. This is Billy Deverts. And this is Stacy Fugit. As always, um, today's guest, it's a little closer to home and has considerable expertise in the field of public health and is currently a physician's assistant student at the University of Kentucky. We would like to welcome the one, the only, the man, the myth, the legend, Dakota Halbert, to the podcast today. Um, we're going to jump right in. Dakota, first of all, thank you for being here. We're so happy to have you um, and really appreciative of your time because as our listeners will learn, you're a busy man. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, all of the good stuff. Yeah, thank you all for having me. I've been listening to the podcast. I really love it. Uh, it's a real honor to be here. And for all the listeners out there, I served as Stacy and Billy's camp counselor back in the day, probably circa 2014, 2015, somewhere in there, before social distancing and all that. Um, so it, it's been a really huge honor to see how far they've brought, you know, a podcast that really focuses on Appalachia and just all the good things that we have to share. Um, so about myself, my name is Dakota Halbert. I am from Irvin, Kentucky, which is in Estill County. So right on the border of Appalachia, I think our town motto is where the bluegrass kisses the mountains. So it, it's a beautiful part of the country. Um, I graduated from high school there in 2013, came to UK as a Robinson Scholar. Um, while at UK, you know, I bounced around from major to major and finally landed in public health. And that's when I, I fell in love with that discipline and decided to stay around after I graduated in 2017 to get my master's in public health. And I finished that up in 2019 and I have been working in the College of Public Health at UK, as well as uh, being a physician assistant student in the College of Health Sciences. So do a lot on campus, love the University of Kentucky, see blue, bleed blue, all that stuff. And we're so thank you all for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And we're so glad to have you on campus because I feel like, especially with Appalachian students, and I feel like I touch on this in almost every episode, but it's nice knowing that you have that community, you know, so... There's always that sense of, oh, Dakota's always in Lexington, like, if I ever need anything. Oh, yeah, it is definitely, you know, and beyond Robinson Scholars, right? Like, 606 is a community yeah. on campus, right? Like, that's all you got to see is, you know, when you're, when you're in class and you get in that group chat and you see 606 pop up and you're like, mm, where are you from? we we got we got to figure this out and then you know then you have that whole conversation like who's your aunt who's your uncle who'd you graduate with and then by the end of the class you like realize you you know half of their family they know half of your family oh, yeah. and it, it's a permanent connection yeah my, fa my favorite thing is uh which county are you from and then after they say the county it's well do you know this person do you know this person do you know this person Absolutely. And, and you know what else I love about that is watching all the people who are from Chicago look at this conversation take place because they're like, what county? What do they mean? What are they talking about? And, you know, it, then you got to have that conversation with them about county pride and, you know, how we might have been rivals back in, in the basketball or football field. But, you know, here on campus, we're a family. That's for sure. Yeah, I had somebody yesterday um, ask me where I was from, and uh, I told him Knott County, and 
they didn't understand that, I guess. And they were like, well, what city? And I said, well, the seed city's Hyman. You probably wouldn't know which city I live in. And they go, oh, yeah, Hyman, that's in Hazard, right? And I was like, no. <laughs> no. Not quite, but yeah. Not quite. That, that, that is where Alice Lloyd's at, right? Yeah, yeah. that's where Alice Lloyd yeah. is. Good old Pippa passes. Um, yeah, so I think that I'm like uh, an outlier because whenever somebody asks where I'm from, I always say Hazard. I don't say Perry County because it's like, I guess it's because I went to Hazard City Schools. And so um, I'm like, oh, I'm from Hazard. And also like our tagline is Queen City of the Mountains. So I just think that everybody knows where that is. Um, so yeah. <laughs> See, I've actually, you know, I introduced myself as being from Irvin, Kentucky. I have to actually consciously do that or I'll just say I'm from Estill County. Like, like that's a conscious decision that I have to make myself do is say I'm from Irvin, Kentucky to sound more normal, I guess you could say, but I, I'm right there with you, Billy. Like if someone just asked me on the fly, I'd be like, I'm from Estill County. Yep. Um, so Dakota, tell us a little bit about public health, um, kind of backtracking. <laughs> tell us a little bit about public health and what exactly is the study of public health. Yeah. So First of all, public health is in everything we do as a society. Um, a, a lot of people, their first question is, well, can I be in public health if I'm a teacher? Can I be in public health if I'm an engineer? Can I be in public health if I am in information technology? And the answer is always yes, because public health is essentially a discipline that works towards building healthier communities and, and protecting populations from disease or injury. And that has a very big task behind it, right? Like that's not something that is just, you know, being a food inspector or uh, working in sanitation, right? Like those are very basic level public health services that are critical for us to keep going. But, you know, there are people in public health who study, you know, the, the spread of um, measles, right? So there, there was not, not too long ago, measles became, you know, there's this outbreak and we haven't seen a lot of outbreaks in measles in a very long time. So there are people who actually watch for these outbreaks to occur. Um, there are sectors of public health that look at, you know, toxicology and look at, um, how pollution levels are rising in water sources and, and things like that. So anything from working in local, state, federal policy, you know, creating the Affordable Care Act all the way down to seatbelt laws, helmet laws. Um, I, I think a very common one that a lot of people understand right now is um, looking at local municipality laws that govern, you know, those scooters or those bicycles that people can rent, right? Mm -hmm. Because everyone thinks that's such a great idea, but then what you get is you get a lot of people with head injuries, right? Because those things don't come with a helmet. And how do you ensure that these people who are riding these scooters or these rental bicycles actually are doing so safely, right? Okay, yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of guilty of wiping out on those. Yeah, uh, <laughs> no, I mean I, I am as well. Like I, I've rented a bicycle and you know taken it without a helmet. We all have. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, there are people in public health who who sit down and look to actually make sure we are, as a population, 
being as healthy and as protected as we can be. Um, so, so in a nutshell, that's what public health is. Um, but in, in reality, it's, it encompasses every sector of society. Yeah, that's, that's actually really interesting. We were talking about that before when I called you yesterday, um, how public health kind of involves everything, whether you realize yeah. it or not. And I, I never even thought about that. Um, I used to rent the Lime Scooters and those were great, which that was pre-COVID. But um, there was a crack on the sidewalk right out from my apartment I'd always have to watch out for. And one day I just wasn't paying attention. It completely wiped out in front of a whole group of people. So, I mean, there was a good chance I could have got injured. So that's, that's a good point. I never, I never even thought of that. Um, yeah, so, yeah. And, and so it's, it's things like that, you know, policy um, and, and laws that protect people all the way down to, like I said, like people who are actually out in the field testing animals to track the spread of a virus, right? Like that is also core public health. Um, so there's something for everyone in public health. Well, um, some, something that we always ask every guest that comes on is uh, their story. I feel like the, the story of every person is important. And um, if you don't mind, we'd like to hear about yours and, and your journey to deciding uh, to be a public health major and uh, what, what your motivations or deciding factors were, and if, if the Appalachian region that you came from had an impact on your decision or acted as a motivation. Yeah, so I'm gonna answer that last question about Appalachia first, because I, I definitely agree with that. Um, so I, I grew up in Irvin, Estill County. Um, you know, when you look at all the Eastern Kentucky, Appalachian counties, for the most part, they're all about the same in terms of health outcomes. And spoiler alert, they're not that great, right? Um, there are some that are way worse than others. You know, Stacy over in Hazard probably has a little bit more of a healthier community compared to, you know, some of the worser ones like Owsley, um, Breathitt, places like that that are more isolated. Um, but yeah, you know, I remember growing up and by the age of probably eight or nine, you know, I knew what a stroke was. I'd had people in my family who have had a stroke, who have had heart attacks. Like I just knew that this was the way of life in Eastern Kentucky, right? You get to be 50, 60 years old, you have a stroke, you get diagnosed with cancer, you have a heart attack, you're in a car accident, something like that comes along and really affects your life. And, you know, everyone likes to think that we, we focus on death in public health, but we also have to focus on disability, right? So stroke, heart attacks, car accidents, all these things really affect a person's quality of life, right? They're bedridden, maybe they had to lose a leg, something like that. And I think seeing that at such a young age really inspired me to make a change. Now, originally my goal on how to make that change was I need to be a doctor, right? Like I need to be a doctor and I need to treat people in the hospital. And that's how I make a change in this society is I treat them, I get them better, they're healthy again. So I came to UK as a Robinson Scholar, um, was a biology major at first, was pre-med, was like, I'm going to be a, a trauma surgeon or a cardiologist or something like that. And 
you know, I was shadowing and I really loved the hospital and I really loved taking care of patients. Um, but one thing I didn't like were my courses as a biology major, right? So I, I remember being in plant biology and, and no offense to people who love plants, there is definitely a space for that in the world. And that is very critical, but it was not for me, right? I, I was sitting there and I was like, how does plant biology actually teach me anything about helping these people that I care about? Mm. And so I, I started looking around at other majors and UK had just launched their major, the, the first ever on campus bachelors of public health. And I was, I was reading the description and I was like, this is what it's about. Like, this is why I'm here. Like, this is the good stuff. This is where I want to be. So I switched over to public health, probably my sophomore year and took like the first introductory course and was just like, that was a good decision. This is where it's at. You know, this is where real, like, big level changes are made that really help people have a healthier, better life. That's where I learned that, you know, if we can prevent someone from having a stroke or if we can prevent someone from getting in a car accident, that's 10 times better than treating a stroke or treating a car accident, right? So I went on, I was still pre-med. Um, I was still, you know, interested in being a clinician and, um, but working in the sector of public health, which isn't actually that uncommon. We have several physicians who um, work in public health. In fact, Dr. Stack is an emergency medicine physician by training and he's the, he leads up our department of public health in Kentucky. Um, so it's not uncommon for physicians to also have training and formal specialization in public health. So I was on the, you know, physician track and um, I would say my senior year at UK, I took a course and it was called Introduction to Medicine. And it was supposed to be a course that was just, you know, taking patient vitals, taking a patient history, just like the basic, you know, how do you be someone in healthcare? And that course was actually taught by a professor who was a physician assistant and he had his doctorate and master's in public health. And I, I really was like, this is what I want. I want to be a physician assistant and work in public health. Um, and, and so that's when I decided, you know, I'm going to go and get my master's in public health. And then after my master's in public health, go to PA school um, and, and really make the most out of being both a healthcare provider and working in state public health. Yeah, that's, so that's my that's my long story to where I am as of right now. Well, that's awesome. It's so comforting to like kind of find your your path early on, you know, um, and as a sophomore in college, it may not have felt like it was early on, but like you can tell by just talking to you about public health that you are so giddy about it and you are so passionate about it. I think that that's what's important um, because if you love your job, you'll never have to work a day in your life, exactly. right? Uh, <laughs> and an another thing that... Uh... We, we spoke about on the phone yesterday was uh, I was talking about how interesting public health is and how I may have been interested mm -hmm. in that before um, I became dead set on political science and history. And uh, you made a really good point that it's never too late. Uh, would you like to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, you know, in so, so now working in the College of Public Health and working with our admissions team and some of our faculty and helping teach courses I really get to look at the different types of students we have. And, you know, one of the common 
misconceptions is you have to have an undergraduate degree in public health to go to grad school in public health. And that's just not the case. In fact, most of our students who come to graduate public health, um, to one of our graduate public health programs has, you know, some background other than public health, whether that be journalism or civil engineering. We've had uh, chemi uh, people with chemistry degrees come to public health. Um, political science is a very common one just because there's so much overlap with health policy and, and political science. So um, really the only prerequisite to go and get your master's in public health is to actually be interested in building a healthier community. You know, having that different background is amazing. When we have students who come and really understand how, you know, how does journalism and media work, right? Like those students bring a skill set to the table that other students don't have, right? Like understanding media and how all that interconnects and how you mass communicate to populations is very critical. On the same side of things, you know, understanding how the political system and the political structure works is an asset in public health. There's so many people in public health who get very frustrated because, you know, policies don't get voted on correctly or, you know, things get bargained in and out based on the political parties, right? Like, but having an understanding of how that all works makes you a better public health expert. So I actually advocate for us to create a diverse graduate class of, um, you know, people who have different life skills, different life experiences, different academic backgrounds, all that, because what we're really trying to do is create a program and a cohort that builds off each other and you can learn from each other's backgrounds. If we were all the same in public health, it would be very boring. Mm -hmm. Billy, did Dakota just recruit us to get our master's in public health on so. our own podcast? <laughs> I will try and, and I will also give a, a little shout out that even if you don't want a full master's in public health, but you are a graduate student at UK, we have graduate certificates, which are kind of like little minor degrees at the undergraduate level. Um, so, you know, say you are in urban planning, you know, in, in grad school for urban planning and you would like to have um, a graduate certificate in global health. We have that. Um, and so you can tack on public health curriculum to whatever graduate program you're in. Um, a, a lot of our um, business administration students tack on um, some of our healthcare administration graduate certificate courses because they're really interested in kind of the healthcare side of things. So um, we also understand that, you know, getting a whole graduate degree in public health isn't for everyone but there are select courses that we offer that might interest you and be relevant in what you're pursuing. I did not know that you could tack on like a certificate um, at the graduate level, yeah. that's awesome. UK has um, a lot of graduate certificates. And, and you know, I know this is something that's might be specific to UK. I think other universities have these as well, um, but we have, I think probably 30 plus graduate certificates at UK that students can, you know, pack on to their other programs. So I know that you like work with admissions, obviously, would you say, and I don't know if you have access to this information or if you're even allowed to disclose it. So feel free, we can cut this out if need be, but would you say that, you know, what is the percentage of maybe like Appalachian students that particularly, because I mean, I think it's, 
it does play into like being from Appalachia does play into that kind of career field. You know, you see the yeah. their disparities and inequalities. I, I will say that since I've been a part of the college and, you know, I'm not going to take credit for this, but we have had a lot of Robinson Scholar involvement. Um, so much so that at one point, I think we had 12 Robinson Scholars uh, majoring in public health at the undergraduate level. Um, so in incredible, you know, numbers there. We don't actually um, track Appalachian status per se, um, but we do track first gen status. And that is something that our college cares deeply about. Um, and I will also like to point out that our College of Public Health has a very, how, how do you say, strong emphasis, a strong interest in the Appalachian public. We do a lot of research there with Appalachia. Um, we do a, a lot of, you know, mission-driven work there and projects, and um, our college is really dedicated to that population. Um, I do know, you know, we have students every year who are, are definitely from the region and they come from other schools like Moorhead or U-Pike or EKU um, because we're one of the bigger, you know, public health schools in the state, really. Um, so a lot, a lot of students come to us, but I, I couldn't tell you how many are actually from Appalachia. Um, I do know it, it, it's a decent number every year. Gotcha. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that the College of Public Health really does have um, a strong interest in giving a little extra tender love and care to the Appalachian yeah. region. Yeah, our, um, and I will, you know, give a shout out to our Dean of the College of Public Health. She is a first generation Appalachian student herself. Um, so very, you know, proud to be from that region. And, and a lot of her work um, is on, you know, cardiovascular disease, stroke, things like that, that these conditions that are really prevalent in the area and, um, you know, bringing that expertise to UK, a, a school that cares so much about the Appalachian people and the communities, um, it, it really has done nothing but enhance our ability to, to serve that population. Yes, definitely shout out to your name. What did you say her name was? Her again? name is Donna Arnett. Donna Arnett. Gotcha. Yes. Shout out her for sure. Uh, first generation Appalachians. We love them on this podcast. <laughs> Me and Billy are a little bit biased, but that's okay. <laughs> um, in the same vein of, you know, healthcare and healthcare resources in Appalachia, um, we want to go into more detail about that. So like in your professional opinion, would you say that there is a public health crisis in Appalachia? there has been a public health crisis in Appalachia. It's, it's not new by any means. And with, without, you know, drastic measures, it, it's not going to go away anytime soon. Um, we really have to be creative as a state and as a, you know, and Appalachia is more than just Kentucky, right? It extends all the way from uh, Georgia all the way up to Maine. Is that right? Like it, it goes very far huge region but right here in central appalachia i'm talking you know kentucky west virginia virginia tennessee that area we are in a public health crisis um and, and we have been so before the show you know i knew we were going to get into this so I, I pulled just some of the bigger statistics about appalachia that i want to 
just kind of share. Um, heart disease mortality. Appalachia has a 17% higher heart disease mortality than the national average. A 33% higher injury mortality than the national average. Diabetes is double the national rate. Kentucky is number one in cancer deaths, number two for septicemia, which is a massive uh, full body infection, and number three for injury death. Our infant mortality is 21% higher than the national average. Think about how many Appalachian newborns are dying just because of a zip code just because of where they are born, they have a higher chance of death. We're talking about a region in the United States that is some of these health statistics that I just read are on par with developing countries. Mm -hmm. That is, in my opinion, not acceptable. And, you know, Appalachia is not alone in this. There are some very, you know, grave similarities between these health statistics in Appalachia, very rural, to inner city poverty, right, in, in places like New York City, um, uh, Detroit, places like that. There are a lot of pockets of public health crisis in the United States, Appalachia being a pretty big one. Um, so, so yeah, if that's not enough to prove that we're in a public health crisis like that, that is five or six different broad areas. And, and the list goes on and on. You know, we talked about heart disease, cancer, diabetes, injury, infant mortality. We can talk about food deserts, right? We can talk about uh, access to physical exercise, um, health behaviors, um, HIV AIDS, hepatitis C, drug overdoses, right? Like that's a big one that I didn't even hit on was the opioid crisis, right? Like constantly Appalachia is at the tail end of every public health crisis in the country. Why? I, I don't think there's a single answer to that. Um, and, and I don't think there's a single solution. But this is why public health builds upon those diverse backgrounds is because we need people in urban planning. We need attorneys. We need physicians. This is not a problem that one discipline can fix. And that is why public health isn't just one discipline. It, it is a, really it's about bringing disciplines together for a common interest. And that's to fix some of these problems that we have. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, I don't think it's any secret that one of Appalachia's biggest export is its people, you know? Yeah. So, uh, that's something that I think that public health can specialize in is bringing these disciplines together and sending them back to those, I don't want to call them problem areas, but from the statistics that you just um, stated to us, like, it's very obvious that there needs to be work done there and it needs to happen yesterday, so... Yeah, and I do, you know, that brings up the point, like, I want to highlight a couple of the things that we are doing right now to fix these problems here at UK and within the state. Um, so we talked about cancer being the number one cause of death. 
Um, here in Kentucky, we have made strides in um, cancer screenings, right? One in particular that the College of Public Health has been a part of is colorectal, colorectal cancer screenings. Mm-hmm. Um, so we essentially work with uh, primary care offices in and throughout Eastern Kentucky to make sure that they are getting their patients screened for colorectal cancer. A while ago, you know, that required a colonoscopy, which if you all know any a bit about the culture in Appalachia, colonoscopies don't really sit well with the men in Eastern Kentucky, right? Um, so we had to think about a new innovative way to screen for colorectal cancer. And we've actually seen, I think the last, and don't quote me on this, but it was around a third to two thirds of a reduction in colorectal mortality in Eastern Kentucky, right? Huge stride there. Um, Lung cancer screenings. There are so many opportunities to have have a chest CT to get scanned for lung cancer in Appalachia compared to five years ago. And the key with lung cancer is catching it early so that we can surgically remove it. Um, So we have made strides Um, with the opioid epidemic. You know, UK was recently awarded an $87 million grant from the NIH to um, reduce opioid overdose deaths by half in 16 of Kentucky's counties, right? We are doing a lot of work, a lot of good work. And these numbers should not deter people from being involved in Appalachia, they should motivate you. Um, I always tell people, they're like, why do you wanna work in Kentucky if it's so bad? And I'm like, why would you wanna work anywhere else? You know, like, why would you want to get all this training to be, you know, a physician assistant and to be a public health professional and go somewhere where they don't have problems that need fixed, right? You know, it's kind of like, I don't know, you know, becoming a, a mechanic and going somewhere where there's no cars to repair, right? <laughs> Doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so I think being in the heart of this is the best place uh, to really have a career in public health and healthcare. Yeah. And, you know, you're really boots on the ground. And like you said about um, men in specifically Eastern Kentucky, I've seen this firsthand having the issue with the colorectal screening. Um I just think that there, it all goes back to this stigma of like masculinity equals not being checked by a doctor for things. And it, that's so sad, but I think that with these statistics of how you are combating that problem, I think that you're slowly like breaking, not even slowly, just breaking that mold and breaking down that barrier. Um, and I can't wait to see, you know, the positive outcomes from the hard work that y'all are doing. Yeah, and it's so much, it's a lot of these things are simple, you know, um, with the colorectal screening, um, we found that if a physician just asks someone, would you like to participate in this, uh, you know, this cancer screening, they're probably going to say, no, I don't need that. That's not for me. But if they have a peer health educator, which is someone from the community mm-hmm. who they see as an equal, right, talks to them about the benefits of getting screened for colorectal cancer, they're more likely to say, hey, doc, yeah, I do want to take that test. Let, let's do that, right? So 
you know, more and more in Appalachia, we're using these community health workers, uh, peer health educators, what ha what, whatever you call them, but really what they are, are, are lay people who understand the importance of health and how we get to building a healthier, healthier community that can talk to these people, right? Um, we're all proud Appalachians. We don't like to be talked down to. And that's exactly what you hear when you go to a doctor's office is you get somewhat talked down to, right? And not all of them, but but often that's the case is a lot of the patients feel like they're getting a, a lecture, right? Like they're getting disciplined for being bad and having high blood pressure, or, you know, being overweight or whatever. And, and that's not how it should be. But incorporating these community health workers, these peer health educators, it really normalizes wanting to be healthy. Well, there's another uh, big medical issue that I'd like to, I guess you would call it a medical issue, um, that I'd like to touch on is uh, it's black lung. So in the Appalachian region, especially Eastern Kentucky, Southern West Virginia, well, all of West Virginia, uh, South everybody back home. Um, Start that question and I can edit this part out. Your Wi-Fi froze. Did it really? Okay. Yeah, I can restart it. I didn't like the way. I, oh, it just said it's unstable. Hold on. Let's wait till it. Mine will do that every evening too. So. Well, my apartment complex just changed their internet to be like an entire community Wi-Fi instead of individual apartment Wi-Fis. So my Zoom goes out like often now. Are we good now? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, another issue that I'd like to talk about and ask you about in Appalachia is black lung. So as, as we all know, uh, coal mining, coal mining was, was huge in Eastern Kentucky, all of West Virginia, Southwestern Pennsylvania, Western Virginia. And these coal companies came in years ago and well, it's also recent too. I mean, black lung still exists today, obviously, but all these coal companies came in and, used people for their employment, which it was good. It employed people, people had jobs, but they came in and safety was a priority on paper, but not in practice. And the coal mine shut down, they left and left many Appalachians with black lung, this severe health issue. I know people died from it. Uh, my, my papa died from it. Uh, multiple, multiple people back home have it. Um, I feel like we probably all know at least two or three people that have it. Um, could, could you talk a little bit about black lung and the impact it's had on the people of the Appalachian region over the years, uh, then and now? Yeah. Especially with the decreasing, the decrease of coal mining in the region, how it yeah. still has an impact. And I'm, I'm really glad that you, I, I saw this question because one, you know, you, you talked about your grandpa who, who passed away from black lung. I just had an uncle last Friday pass away from black lung. It is a real condition that disproportionately affects Appalachian coal workers. And in fact, um, in the medical community, we actually call it coal worker pneumoconiosis. So CWP. Um, and what black lung is, for anyone who doesn't know, it's essentially 
you have coal miners who go back in to a mountain to, you know, take out coal or, or even on um, a strip mine where mountaintop removal, you're still exposed to the coal dust. But when you inhale that coal dust, there's particulate that gets down in your lung, causes inflammation, um, builds up scar tissue and, and really diminishes your lung function. Um, like Billy said, most of us probably know someone who has died, currently has it. Um, and, uh, you know, like most health issues that we have in the state, there's not, you know, one person or one entity at fault. And there's not one solution to fix it. And to, and to be honest, pneumoconiosis has no cure, right? There is no way to actually um treat and cure black lung. It is a condition that they will live with until they die if it doesn't kill them itself. Um, but actually there was a recent study back, I think in 2018 that showed the, um, the, the prevalence of uh, black lung is climbing. And, you know, two things, that means one, we're probably diagnosing more cases of black lung and two, people are probably living longer with black lung. So a bad thing, but probably a good thing that we're keeping them alive a little bit longer, right? So there's, the longer we keep them alive, the more people there are that can be included in that prevalence count. Um, but Billy, kind of like what you said is, you know, coal industry was huge in Appalachia. You know, it, it was, it, it made up so much of so many people's economy, right? Like you look at Hazard, Ashland, Pike Bull, and all these coal towns scattered in between these cities, um, you, you know, the mines or, or industry directly related to the mines made up a huge part of the economy. And then it, we saw it, you know, I kind of remember this being a kid and everyone leaving to go to work, you know, to go to the coal mines. And then it was like a light switch happened and then there was no coal. Right. And now, like, here we are and we're in this, you know, situation in this economic downfall and so many communities are just, you know, left without jobs. And, and then you also have this health condition that's left behind as well from the coal industry. Um, and, and again, you know, I, I think one, it speaks to the industry itself, right, knowing how dangerous mining is to the, to the health of the workers. And then also, you know, I remember having my uncle and having my uncle's friends and just people who I know worked in the coal mines consistently complain about the respirators that they tried to make them wear, right? And they would say things like, oh, well, my daddy had black lung, so I might as well get it too, right? And, and there's so there's this sense of fatalism that also exists, right? And that's why I say it's not just one entity's fault, right? It's not just the coal industry's fault because there's this health behavior of the people there where they also didn't partake in the protection mechanism, right? Um, and that's not any person's fault, right? Like that's, a, that's a, just a societal norm that happens in, in all populations. Um, you know, it's no different in people who choose not to wear a seatbelt for whatever reason, right? Um, so it gets at the complicatedness of black lung and, uh, you know, lung cancer, which is strongly related to black lung and a lot of people who develop black lung 
also develop some sort of lung cancer. Um, you know, lung cancer is Kentucky's number one cancer. It is the most deadly cancer in Kentucky, um, and it is makes up the largest number of cancer cases, disproportionate to any other state in the United States. Black lung probably has a lot to do with that. I think there are some other things at play, um, but, you know, and then when you look at a lot of these coal miners, um, a lot of them, I know my uncle was also a smoker, right? So you compound COPD on top of black lung and you get just a bad combination uh, of a respiratory condition um, that all too many of us in Appalachia know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I can't picture because I have a lot of coal miners in my family, as does everyone in Appalachia, I'm sure, but I can't picture one of them that like, I'm not saying it's 100% mutually exclusive, but I don't know one coal miner that doesn't also smoke cigarettes. So um, I think that those two kind of go hand in hand. And I think that it's this vicious circle of, like you said, fatalism of like, you know, you can get out of high school or at least, you know, a few years ago, um, you could graduate high school, um, not pursue a college degree and still make 20 bucks an hour, you know, that sounds like a great deal, you know, like you don't have to do four more years of school, especially to those people who, you know, go into work life right away out of college, I mean, out of high school. So it's like, there's that vicious circle of, oh, I'm going to have all this disposable income. I'm not going to be in any student debt because I, you know, I don't have to pursue a four-year degree. So, um, I'm sure all of us can remember um, when we were younger, even in grade school, uh, there were a lot of kids that would not be too concerned about school because they knew that when they graduated, they were going into the coal mines. And I mean, obviously college isn't for everyone, but that was some, that was a mindset with a lot of people. There were generations of miners and you don't want to break that tradition in your family. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's kind of sad to think of it because you come, you come out of school and you're making good money compared to someone who's in college, but at what cost? Yeah. My brother, my youngest brother, who is 10 years older than me, I remember being like 14, 13. And then like just here. And at this point he's only 23, you know, and he's coughing and I'm like, dude, I mean, granted again, he smoked cigarettes, but I'm like, dude, like you're 23 years old, you know, your lungs. And I was old enough to recognize that like your lungs should not sound like that. But I mean, it, it is like, you know, good money, but at what cost? Um, and I think that the media has a lot to like, I think that a lot of things play into this, but the media, especially today, one and any politician will tell you this, like one way to bag voters in Eastern Kentucky is just you know, say that you're going to bring coal jobs back. And that's unfortunate. Um, but it has really polarized the people, especially, I'm not going to say all of Appalachia, but especially the people of Eastern Kentucky, because if you hear of a candidate that is attacking coal, which is an industry that put food on everyone's table at one point, you know, it's like, how can you vote for them? How can you turn your back on that industry? But um, there are far more complicated things that go into that, obviously. It's just again back to that vicious circle 
Well, it's it's like Dakota said, there's not just one entity right. or one solution. It, yeah. It's a complex situation, especially in the Appalachian region. You've got the loss of jobs, the economies went downhill. Mm-hmm. It, it's complex. It's a complex issue that requires complex and possibly multiple solutions. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And, and, you know, like one of those solutions, um, I always like to talk, you know, we, being from Appalachia, a lot of people love to talk about the bad things, right? I also like when we talk about the bad things to highlight the little, the bright spots. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I believe they're still doing this. They, they were about a year or two years ago. Um, Pikeville Medical Center had an actual training program for minors to actually come to Pikeville Medical Center. They could sign up. They would get them trained to do, you know, other positions within the hospital, um, whether that be, you know, and, and these are also good high paying jobs, right? Like being um, a, a rag tech in radiology or, or working as a respiratory therapist, things like that, that are, you know, skill based positions where, you know, you worked in the coal mine, you had all this knowledge, right? Because I, I know. You know, I think a lot of people outside of Appalachia have this idea that coal miners are, you know, they're not smart or or things like that. But there's a lot that goes into being a coal miner, right? Like there's a lot of technical skills that they have to learn and get certified and um, that they have to go through to actually go back into that mines. Um, and, and utilizing and building on that skill set, right? Because Pikeville Medical Center understood, like, if you can learn these technical skills to be a minor, we can probably train you to do these other technical skills that we would utilize in the hospital. Um, So there are training programs like that that I've seen pop up throughout Appalachia. Um, Again, I think an issue that they're having is low enrollment, right? Because people want mining to come back and like Stacy said that's a deeper issue that could have its whole probably podcast <laughs> dedicated to coal mining um but you know I, I'm not here to say whether coal is coming back or not but there is a lot of health issues and economic issues that turn into health issues around the whole industry um so yeah, I'm, I'm glad we did get to talk about black lung mobility. That well, was... I'm glad you brought up the point that there's a lot of people that think just because the majority of people are coal miners that they're not intelligent. Some of the smartest people I've met have never gotten an A in school. I, I completely agree with that. You know, I remember being, um, being young and b- being just kind of, you know, fascinated by a coal mine, right? Like as, as a young guy in Appalachia, you know, there's a lot of equipment and, you know, I was just really fascinated by the whole operation, right? Like I loved driving by the coal mine and like seeing all the trucks and just, you know, being, being there. Right. Um, and my grandpa was a federal mine inspector and my uncle was an actual coal miner and several people in my family were. And I remember, you know, my uncle would actually like, I would just have all these questions about like, how does the coal mine work? And he would like sit down and pull out these schematics of the mines and like actually show me like, how does this scoop and how do they do like roof bolting and um, you know, where, how does the airflow occur in the mine to keep like good circulation and, you know, just all this really fascinating stuff that takes a lot of skill. 
Um, but I, I, I agree. I think people just kind of brush it off as, you know, they're just not intelligent and that's a blue call. I, I think that's a problem with a lot of blue collar work is people, you know, in our shoes, in our educated, you know, world, just assume that being something, you know, in, in the blue collar world requires lower intelligence. And I wish like more people could get that stigma, you know, get rid of that stigma. Yeah, it, it makes me really angry for people. I'm sorry that we're kind of getting off topic of public health, but this is something I feel like needs to be talked about. It makes me angry whenever people say that coal miners aren't smart and that it's their fault that they're unable to find another job because the only skill set they have is coal mining. When you've got coal miners that were electricians, roof bolters, uh, mechanics, a lot of diesel mechanics worked in coal mines. You had heavy machinery, heavy machinery operators that uh, run like the continuous miner. And you put me in a coal mine and I'd have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, I remember (laughs) also being fascinated by it, but then I asked my brother, I was like asking him questions, you know how kids do. And he like sat me down and he was showing me these YouTube videos and I quickly learned that I just didn't have time to hear about all of it because there's so much um, that goes into it. He's like, well, I do this position, but in order for me to you know, do this role. There's this guy that has to do this role and this has to get done. And I'm like, dude, I'm 12. I, please like <laughs> use smaller words. Um, definitely need to dismantle that stigma around blue collar work. And HTTC also did um, a program sim- similar to Pikeville Medical Center. Um, they, I'm not sure if they just did it for the lineman program, but I know that they um, funded some technical programs for, you know, displaced miners. So the same brother that was a coal miner, he's now a lineman through that program. Um, and super smart. He now tries to tell me about electrical things and I still don't get it. I'm 21. So I'm like, (laughs) um, yeah, but I'm really glad that we touched on black lung. And I think that, um, it's a very important topic that maybe a lot of people, I'm not going to say a lot of people don't know about it, but I'm going to say that, you know, it's like there's that circle of, oh, well, my grandfather did this, my father did this, and so who cares if I get black lungs, so. Right. But touching on another disease that is plaguing everyone right now, kind of addressing the plague's a bad word there. I'm going to restate that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Dang, okay. Um, Touching on another disease that is very prevalent in 2020 um, and has changed our way of life completely um, and kind of addressing the elephant in the room is COVID-19, obviously. And so, you know, last season we had Dr. Douglas Scutchfield on the podcast and this is, this was back in March. So March or April. So, you know, COVID-19 was fairly new. People knew things about it, but not as much as we know now. Um, We've not been in quarantine for eight months at this point. We have a little bit more sanity. Um, So asking you now, Dakota, um, obviously it's impacted everyone around the world. If you haven't heard about COVID-19, you're probably under a rock. Um, So how has it affected the Appalachian region in particular? Yeah, so I I do want to, say uh 
Dr. Scotchfield. We are from the same little town in Eastern Kentucky. Um, so, and he's he's a professor in uh, the College of Public Health as well. So I've worked with him a few different times. Um, lovely guy, great physician, great public health champion. Um, he he knows how to throw out the jokes and and have a good time, but very, you know, intelligent guy. And I, I think just an asset for the region and set up so many opportunities um, for students from Appalachia. You know, he, he loves and is a huge supporter of Appalachian students. Um, but hitting more, you know, on COVID-19, when I think about COVID-19 and I think about Eastern Kentucky, the first thing that I come to mind is infrastructure, right, and, and healthcare infrastructure. Um, a lot of people assume that Appalachia is not connected to the outside world. Um, you know, we had a conversation a few years back about um, HIV and hepatitis C spreading throughout Appalachian communities. And some of the country's like top public health officials were throwing out blanket statements like, oh, don't worry. You know, if someone gets diagnosed with HIV or hep C in Appalachia, it, it won't spread because, you know, Appalachia, it's isolated. People don't have connections there. there there's not a big social network. And uh, we, we had this faculty member at UK who did not accept that and actually built a social network in Appalachia um, to show how interconnected the people are and how so many people come into close contact with each other throughout the day. So first debunked myth is Appalachia is disconnected from the rest of the world. That is not true. They are very connected. People travel in and out of the region all the time. There are some major roadways that travel through Appalachia. So COVID-19, can spread in rural communities and in Eastern Kentucky. It is not immune to a virus. Um, so that's the first thing I think about. And then the second thing is if a virus, well, not if, the virus is in Appalachia, if it gets to the level that we see, you know, in urban centers or even in some places, you know, South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, they're seeing a lot of big spikes in COVID-19 right now. Um, if we get to that point in a lot of our Eastern Kentucky counties, where are we going to take care of these patients? Um, because we all know that healthy, young individuals, the virus will probably run its course, probably going to be, you know, okay in a couple weeks. But we already talked about more towards the middle of the show, those health statistics about Appalachia, right? How bad is COPD? How bad asthma, heart disease, diabetes, right? One in three Appalachian people have diabetes. That is a huge risk factor for COVID-19 mortality. We're talking about a population that will require substantial intensive care. And that's what I worry about is actually having the infrastructure to support that level of intensive care for the number of patients we could potentially have. Um, you know, in central Kentucky, places like Louisville, uh, northern Kentucky, even southern Kentucky, 
lot more access to, to large scale medical centers, right? You know, we think about here in Lexington, at the flip of a dime, we can build a 400 person uh, field hospital, right? To my knowledge, I don't know if that's happening in Appalachia to that scale, right? That planning, that coordination, that partnership building. I do know some larger hospitals are working with the smaller hospitals there, um, but to what extent, I don't know. That's where my first mind, uh, that's where my first worry goes to is, you know, how are we gonna handle this surge of COVID-19 patients who will probably require high acuity care because of all the comorbidities that they have. Um, and then just, we don't have to get into the, you know, how politicized this virus has become and the fact that mask wearing, um, social distancing, um, all that has lower efficacy in Appalachia. A lot of studies have shown that masks are not worn as much in Eastern Kentucky as they are in Central Kentucky. Um, we know that there's a lot of social bullying of people who wear masks and things like that. And um, they're sheep. They're sheep if you wear a mask. <laughs> yes. So, you know, that's where my mind goes to when I think of COVID-19 in Appalachia is I worry because they're, they're already a sick population, right? In terms of heart disease, diabetes, stroke all these things that just compound on top of it. We're entering flu season right now. We know that the flu vaccine is not as readily used in Appalachia as in other places of the country. So there's just a lot of just compounding concerns that I, I have as being from the region, you know, um, I, I went to, my uncle had a funeral last week. So many people, just not wearing masks and, and things like that. And it, it really makes me concerned, right? And, and I'm not putting blame on them as a society, right? Because that that is a, there, there's a, it's deep, right? That's not just a surface level issue of why they're not wearing a mask. Like that goes so much deeper than just individual choice. Well, there's also a lot of misinformation now and it's so easily accessed. I mean, you can watch any news station, um, any social media account. Got out. At some point, there will be misinformation and you can't get away from it. No matter how much you put over the picture that this is partially false, see why people are still going to believe it. I mean, absolutely. All you have to do is, you know, look at the comment section of any WYMT story about COVID-19 and you will understand where this is coming from, right? Like, I think we as a state have done relatively good. Um, I, you know, I know there at the beginning, we did excellent. We, you know, kept that curve flat. <laughs> you know, I, I think Bashir has done an amazing job. We're entering that point where I think people are tired. Yes. I, I think people had this idea that if we quarantine for two to three weeks, that the virus would go away, um, then we could return to normal life. Um, 
But, you know, right now I looked up before the show, our positivity rate is 7.3%. That's about middle of the pack for the rest of the country. You know, we're not the best, we're not the worst by any means. Um, we have, uh, as of today in Kentucky, about 1,400 deaths, um, 92,000 confirmed cases. Um, so that's about a 1.5% case fatality rate. Again, about middle of the pack. I, I think Kentucky should be proud of that just for the fact that our population is so sick compared to some of the other states that have similar case fatality rates. Um, and, you know, looking at Kentucky, a lot of our cases are coming from young people, right? I, I think we are doing a pretty good job of keeping our elderly populations that are not in nursing homes, that's a whole nother story, that are not in long-term care facilities, but our elderly people at home, I think we're doing a decent job at keeping them protected and keeping them, you know, away from getting a positive case. Nursing home, long-term care facility, that's a whole nother story um, that I think is just a complicated mess at the state level and at the local level. Um, but yeah, I, I think Kentucky has to stay strong and continue through and, you know, wear a mask, social distance, get your flu vaccine, and, and, and please try not to be so, you know, egocentric and, and try to think about the other people who, you know, if we get the virus, nine times out of 10, we're going to be just fine, right? We might not even have a single symptoms, but I know probably every single one of us have a, a grandma, a grandpa, an aunt, uncle that has one of those comorbidities that could put them in the ICU or in the grave. Um, you know, and, and I think so many people, when I went to the, to my uncle's funeral, I had so many people asking me questions. Well, is it really that bad? You know, like so-and-so had it and they're fine. And I found myself like having to share stories about like patients that we have here at UK who are, are you know, just on life support and have been on life support for days, right? Because of this virus. And people say, oh, it's just like the flu. It is not the flu. It is not seasonal flu. Um, I have PA friends in New York, Atlanta, who talk about being in the intensive care unit. And, you know, in a normal week, they probably put a breathing tube in three to four people, you know, in a normal non-COVID week. Mm -hmm when New York or Atlanta was at the peak of their COVID outbreak, um, one of them was putting 20, 25 breathing tubes in a day, right? Like we're, we're talking about a virus that really takes a toll on the elderly and on people with comorbidities. Um, and I think the egocentric nature that so many young people have really is what's keeping this going. Yeah, I think that the worst thing that anybody could have ever said at the start of this thing was, you know, it's like the flu. Um, and going back to us all being exhausted, I think that we're exhausted from different standpoints. So there are people that are exhausted of wearing a mask because they don't think it works or, you know, whatever. But um, I think that, you know, being raised in Eastern Kentucky and being from um, Appalachia, you, you're kind of raised to take care of your neighbor. 
And so for me, I'm exhausted of, you know, going on Facebook and trying to combat those comments of like, oh, this is like the flu, you know? And so it's like, I, when quarantine first started, sure, I had time to argue with the folks of my hometown and be like, hey, like, this is not like the flu, whatever. I'm no expert by any means, but like, I think that it's better to err on the side of caution um, than err on the side of treatment, you know? Uh, see, public health and everything, Dakota. It I'm is. Basically you. Yeah, you. Most people know a lot of public health. <laughs> no, I won't, uh, I won't insult you like that. I'm not basically you, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't usually insult our guests. So um, I was not insulted if it makes you feel any better. <laughs> our listeners said that right here. You were on record. Um, so um, as we all know, public health and healthcare workers across the country are overwhelmed currently um, with everything going on. You know, you just gave that statistic of three to four breathing tubes a week to 25 to 30 per day. Um, and that's scary. So I really want to dive into, you know, are there any programs within public health that you think that people could get involved with, or even just volunteering that, you know, our listeners could do, and even me and Billy could do to kind of do our part that goes above and beyond, you know, social distancing, wear your mask, be a good human, take care of your neighbor. Yeah. You know, that, that's a tough question. And I think one thing that comes to mind is when we talk about this pandemic, we talk about all the other consequences of social distancing, of, you know, uh, unemployment's at an all-time high right now, right? Like there, there are consequences that are not um, good consequences because of this pandemic, right? Because of social distancing, because of, um, you know, essentially trying to flatten the curve, right? No, nobody said that flattening the curve was going to be 100% great, right? It doesn't take someone with, you know, a PhD in economics to understand why businesses are closing and why um, things like that are happening. I worry about, you know, our students, our young kids in the state, mm -hmm. right? Like they're, they're not in school, right? A lot of them are having to stay home. And I know many of us growing up in, you know, poor communities understand, you know, school is often a getaway from home, sure. right? It, it's often a safe haven. It's where you go and you get food. Um, I think we as a society need to understand that we can step up and, you know, help out at local food banks, right? There are kids going hungry right now because of the things we're having to do to take the care of this pandemic, mm -hmm. right? We got to make sure that those things are still getting done, right? We have to make sure that our, you know, mental health services are still get taken care of. Um, things like volunteering with Meals on Wheels, right, to make sure that elderly people are getting the food that they need so that they don't have to go out to the grocery store. Um, I, I'm pretty sure most Kentucky counties at this point have uh, one or more food banks that are actively, you know, serving their community, no questions asked, you just roll up, you can get food, they'll put it in your trunk, go home. 
um, a lot of Kentucky schools are um, working with, uh, I forget the name of the program, it's Farmers for Students maybe. Um, and essentially they're providing, you know, fresh produce, meats, veggies, uh, dairy to students and their families. Um, just no questions asked, right? You just roll up and, and you show that you have a kid in that school district, you get free food. Um, helping teachers out right now. You know, if you're a young person and you know how to do that, uh, <laughs> the new way that they're doing math and, you know, you can help people out and, and stuff like that. I know, I know I have nieces and nephews um, who are in school right now and their parents are struggling to keep up with the content and work, right? So if you have the bandwidth to help out with tutoring and things like that, to keep an eye on our kids, to, you know, help make sure the elderly are doing good, try to get involved that way. Um, I think right now, more than ever, we need community engagement. And I know that that can be like a little bit, well, how do you get engaged in your community if we have to socially distance? it's possible, right? Sure. Social distancing and, um, you know, wearing a mask doesn't mean we can't come together per se and have a common goal to make a better community. Um, so yeah, I think that those would be my biggest recommendations is look at who in your community, mainly the elderly, the kids who are suffering because of this, you know, social distancing, quarantine, things like that. Mm -hmm. And how can we make it as normal for them? Because um, I, I do, I feel for, you know, all the kids. I couldn't imagine not having, you know, after school sports right now, or academic team, all these, you know, extracurriculars that made me who I am yeah. and, and not having that. Um, so, so I think we'll get creative and, and there are definitely bright spots every day. Um, and just being positive. Yeah. Well, Dakota, this has been a great episode. And I'm so glad that you agreed to come on. Uh, but before we end it, uh, is there anything that you'd like to talk about to let the listeners know about? I just want to encourage everyone. Um, I, I hope that you, if, if you've listened to the episode this far, that you've walked away with an understanding of public health in that you don't have to be formally trained in public health to be doing public health, right? As long as you are building a better and healthier community, you in my book are a public health professional. However, if you are interested and would like a more formal education on public health and more formal training, please consider looking into, you know, our master's programs, our, um, our graduate certificates, um, even, you know, whether they're not at the University of Kentucky, right, there are plenty of EKU, Western, U of L, they all have public health programs, um, but it really is a, a field where you can make a difference and um, really go out and we can make a healthier Kentucky. Yeah, for sure, and I think if anything, um, this pandemic and, um, maybe even bigger picture the unhealthiness of Eastern Kentucky and Appalachia at large. Um, I think it, that those challenges can speak to our resiliency as Appalachians. And I think that uh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, definitely for the pandemic, um, you know, 
the bigger health disparities. It may take a little bit more time, but um, I have no doubts, you know, if they're, if UK keeps turning out people like you, Dakota, then. Um, well, I think if UK keeps turning out people like all of us. True. Right? And, and, you know, and, and not even UK, right? Like just education in general, right? Sure. I, I look at so many of the people that, you know, we went to high school with or we went to college with and um, they're just out doing great things, right? And I agree with you, Stacey. I think we can see a lot at the end of the tunnel. Um, I think there are brighter days for Eastern Kentucky and all of Appalachia. Um, and I think we will be the generation to help get it there, at least until we pass it off to the next generation. Yeah, we're already raising them. We're, uh, we're priming them, so... <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, we appreciate you and we will be sending you a thank you card in the mail. So be sure to drop us your address via email. And yeah, this is a great episode. I can't wait to edit it. You Sometimes I'll edit back episodes and I hate listening to my voice, but since it's mostly you talking, I'm like, thank God. Uh, <laughs> like, um, but yeah. Thanks again, Dakota. Um, you're awesome. Keep fighting the good fight, getting into good trouble. And in the meantime, I'm Stacy Fugit. I'm Billy Devers. And we'll holler at you later. Thanks, guys. <laughs>